welcome back to another episode of It's a Social Thing. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about social media in the financial section. So I'm so excited to welcome my guest, Joe. Welcome. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, my name is Joe Scannell, and I'm a vice president at Edelman, uh, one of the largest PR firms in the world. And I sit at kind of the intersection of digital and social media and the financial community. Um, so my role at Edelman is kind of building and leading a team of digital and social experts that focuses pretty exclusively on the financial world. So working with venture capital firms, private equity firms, hedge funds, banks, uh, you name it. So uh, helping them kind of work their way along into the social media ecosystem um, when they're admittedly kind of often a few years, if not more than that, uh, years behind the, the eight ball. Nice, nice. I mean, that's super interesting. And I'm sure we're going to have a great conversation surrounding that. And hopefully anyone that's listening that's in the financial industry or sector uh, will get some good insights out of this. And who knows, if you need anybody, hit you up at Edelman. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, some three fun facts, they don't have to be social related with the audience. So we can get to know you on a little bit more of a personal and sometimes embarrassing level. Sure. Uh, I think first fun fact, uh, I am, in addition to my job at Edelman, I'm also a public affairs officer in the United States Navy Reserve. So basically, I do digital and social and PR uh, public affairs for the Navy on a part-time basis and and based out of uh, the Pentagon in in Washington, D.C. So I spend about one weekend a month and then two weeks a year serving on active duty um, as a naval officer doing public affairs work, which is always interesting to see how the Navy does it and to learn from the Navy, bring some of my civilian best practices there and and then vice versa. Um, Another fun fact, in college, I was um, and still am very much into the acapella scene and was in an all-male acapella group. Um, and I think the other fun fact is, is I'm trying to fix this, but up until probably two years ago, I'd never left the U S and so I'd never really traveled abroad and, um, I'm really excited to start finally getting out there and traveling a little bit more. Yeah. You're definitely uh, crossing that one off as, as a fun fact. Um, yeah, I think that those are all great fun facts. Thank you so much for sharing. I'd love to hear you acapella sing, but we (laughs) might be for another episode. Yeah. That'll be a whole separate thing. Uh, we could do the, the culture of uh, Pitch Perfect. Oh, God. I, I truly, uh, not as a joke, I think one of the reasons why uh, I got my job at Edelman years ago when I started as an intern was because in addition to, you know, taking classes for PR and social and having internships, I, you know, ran the digital marketing and social for our group um, and was so passionate about it that I probably spent 10 or 15 minutes of my 30 minute interview with the people talking about all the work that I had done. And I think they were like, we get that you had good internships, but you seem so much more passionate about this and you actually accomplished a lot of the things. And um, I, I credit a lot of me getting hired at Edelman in the first place to uh, kind of geeking out about my acapella and social. So that could definitely be another episode someday. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I, I mean, so when, for those that are listening that don't know, who or what Edelman is. It's a huge PR and digital agency and social. Uh, I actually toured it when I was in college. It was like part of that fun PR SSA tour. Uh, But how did you get your foot in the door there? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening will also be in our field. And obviously Edelman is one of the biggest names in in the business. Sure. So, you know, in in all candor, I didn't know a lot about Edelman um, coming out of school. Uh, I was an English major with a 
PR minor and was very clearly into digital and social. And, and when I was in school, it was just becoming a bit of like a miniature track within the PR world where you could actually study that. But all of my internships, I had worked at the American Lung Association, at the USO, um, and, and also at a startup company called Zarly. All of my work was kind of um, in that digital and social space. And so I was really interested in that and was really weighing, you know, whether to go to San Francisco and keep working at the startup company that I had worked at the summer pre prior. Um, and I'd also spent a couple of summers in Washington, DC and applied to Georgetown. Uh, they have a, a master's program, um, in public relations and corporate communications as kind of a backup plan for in case something fell through, um, for a potential job prospect. Cause I think, you know, if you're a, a student in your second semester of college, you all know the feeling of fear of like, what is my job going to be when I graduate? So I was applying to every agency I could think of, every company I could think of. I had this massive spreadsheet and um, applied to Georgetown, not really thinking anything of it and was really fortunate to be accepted into their program. And it's a night school program. And so I was able to get a full-time job and, and work at night. But what's funny is I had applied to every major agency from Ogilvy, Weber, Ketchum, and even Edelman, and didn't hear anything from any of them. I just kind of applied on their online system. I didn't know anybody. And when I got into Georgetown, they started sending around this weekly email newsletter that was, you know, all about the program. But at the bottom, they had a section dedicated for like job postings. And there was a digital and social media intern position there. And when I clicked on it, it didn't take me to the careers website. It took me to like a PDF that had some people's email addresses in it. And no joke was like, Oh my God, actual people. And I sent the most, I, I look back on it now. And these two people are some of my dearest friends and I was actually at one of their weddings. Um, I sent like the most aggressive email, cold email I've ever sent in my entire life. It was basically something along the lines of, hi, my name is Joe. I really want to work at Edelman. Here is my resume, writing samples, letters of recommendation, and like social security number. Like what? Like I gave him everything, <laughs> and I must have come off as like the most aggressive rising senior graduate ever. But you know, to their credit, when I finally got a person, um, they saw my resume and they said, "Hey, you know, you look great. Are you looking to move to DC?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm moving there in August, no matter what, for school. I'd love to start ASAP." had an interview, uh, talked to some people and, and had a job offer by the end of the week. So um, it, it was one of the lessons I learned very early in my life that I try to pass on to anyone when it comes to job searching period is if you're just trying to get jobs through what's posted online or these job boards, I think it's just a really challenging approach. And so I've always tried to help people navigate their way into a company. And I think, you know, ironically, not trying to tie this to digital and social, but like LinkedIn is one of the most untapped treasure troves of information that you could ever want. And I try to tell people, you know, go to my LinkedIn page and see if there are people that we have connections with at a company you want to work for. And I am more than happy if I get an email from somebody saying, Hey, can you make an intro to this person at this company? I'm looking to get a job there. I'll do that in a heartbeat. It's so much harder when someone reaches out and says, Hey, I'm looking for a job. Have you heard anything? No, I haven't heard anything. But if you can help me help you, I will do it in an instant. And so I learned at a very early age that those online, like your resume just goes into a pile. And I've since learned at Edelman, you know, we get hundreds of thousands of applications to come work here. And as part of like a, you know, everyone just throwing the resume in the, in the ring. And it wasn't until somebody actually, a human actually saw my resume that I got any traction. Nice. Yeah. I think that shows the power of LinkedIn. Personally, I got this job through LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm a big proponent of that. And 
I did it by paying for LinkedIn, mm-hmm. but because I didn't have any connections at Singularity. And so, you know, it, it worked out so well because now I'm in basically one of my ideal positions in life. So it's great, you know, all for the LinkedIn, all for the connections. It's more about, you know, who you know sometimes and what you know. Mm-hmm. You need to have the skills, but if you don't know the right people to get your foot in the door, it doesn't matter. Absolutely. At the end of the day, no one's going to look at that resume. It's a computer system that just scans it for keywords. Yeah. And, and I think also, I think sometimes people hear that phrase of it's not what you know, it's who you know, and they assume, oh, I don't have a network. Like what, what can I do? I'm just constantly surprised throughout my life of who knows who and who can make introductions to who. And you might not know somebody who works at the company you want to work at, but like you might be surprised, particularly as you advance in your career. Certainly working at an agency like Edelman, I've met people who've come into the firm and left the firm and gone on to so many other places. The network effects I've experienced are crazy. And even when, you know, if you're looking for a job and you type in a company, like I'm consistently surprised, even if it's a client, like who, like, oh, this person works there. Or this person knows this person. It's such a small world, particularly in our industry. And I think as you get more senior, um, it becomes even smaller. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. And so if we take a look more towards the financial aspect, because obviously, as you said, that's kind of where you're in your industry is for uh, in Edelman. So like, how did you get involved in the financial sector? Because obviously, that's not exactly where everyone's mind goes when they think about social or digital support. So when I started um, in our DC office, which focuses a lot on public affairs and and advocacy, given the kind of location they're in, um, one of the best things I think about working at an agency, and I try to give this advice to anyone who asks in terms of like, where should I start my career? I always try to push people towards thinking about working at a big agency for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's really hard. And I think you're going to find out very quickly if you like it or not. And if it's like for you and that way you get that out of the way very early on in your career. And if you don't like it, you can say forever, I had my agency experience and it's not for me rather than wondering in the back of your mind, should I go work at an agency? Number two, I think for people who don't have a very clear idea of what they want to do or where they want to work, agencies are amazing because you get exposed to so many different sectors and, and types of work. So I, I started on our digital team, which was about 90 people in our DC office. And you know, these are people who are doing everything from paid media to analytics to websites to content creation, graphic design, like you name it. And I kind of found myself in this sort of an account manager, project management role. So I was seeing all different types of work being done and seeing all different kind of sectors and getting exposure there. And over time, you kind of just like think to yourself like, oh, I really like that experience and here's why. Or I didn't love that and I don't want to do that again. And over time, you know, you also start to think about like where can you add value and where can you find like a swim lane for yourself at at a massive company, Edelman's. 6,000 people with 70 offices globally. So, you know, if if you want to make a career there, what is your thing going to be? And I think I started to get some exposure to some financial clients as part of my general portfolio and realized that a lot of these firms and companies, and this was, you know, three or four years ago, are so far behind um, because of the conservative and regulated nature of the business that they don't really have, you know, they're basically looking to other sectors who've already done this for inspiration. 
And I thought to myself, this is a great opportunity to, you know, take an area that I'm naturally curious about. I think, you know, as an English major, I didn't go to, I, I didn't have a business degree. And so in many ways I'm learning all about, you know, the different parts of investor relations and accounting and, and all these different financial areas. So that's, you know, intellectually stimulating for me, but also it was a clear opportunity where I'm, I consider myself to be a very passionate personal user of digital and social and someone who's constantly studying and learning about changes to algorithms, changes to applications, trends, just naturally I'm curious. And so I think it's a competitive advantage to be that trying to stay that close to like the bleeding edge of our industry and then going to a client or a company who's maybe even five years behind that and being able to kind of in some ways predict the future for them because there's no question digital and social works. It's just, you know, they've been reticent to say, what's the value here? How can I make this make sense for my industry? And, and that's kind of where a lot of my expertise comes in is, is just having enough experiences working with companies like you that I can walk in and meet with somebody and say, I hear you. I know where you're coming from. I know your lawyers are going to be challenging. I know compliance is going to review every post. I know you have to worry about categorizing and, and archiving things for legal reasons we figured it out before, we'll help you figure it out. And I think that's all it's really taken. And, and now we're kind of getting to the point where there are enough firms doing this that now we're getting outreach from cli you know potential clients saying, hey, I see all my peers doing it, help me catch up. And, and that's kind of a good feeling too. Yeah, for sure. I know that having some experience in the compliance uh, regulation field from working on some healthcare clients in the past, I know cool. that that can be a pain in the butt to stay yep. up to date on that kind of stuff. So the fact that you guys are setting up a system that really helps them succeed and, and make sure that they're taking care of not only from like a creative standpoint, but from a legal standpoint as well is something that's like so interesting and, and very vital for companies, especially yep. in the financial sector where the FTC or whoever's in charge of those guys, uh, you know, will come down. <laughs> yep. Don't want so, any Elon Musk situations. That's for sure. Yeah, no, that would be bad. Um, but obviously, like, as social media has grown over the past 10 years, uh, we've seen a, a shift in kind of the age groups that people are targeting. Mm -hmm. So obviously, I, I hate to use this word, but millennials were like the biggest buzzword for the past like five years. And people are like really all about them. But now I think that people are also starting to see a shift in Gen Z as they're getting old enough, to, especially old enough to one, purchase things on their own, mm -hmm. uh, and then also open up their own bank accounts. They're starting to go to college and everything like that. So, you know, it's a huge group and, uh, you know, they'll, I think it's about, hold on, let's see. Yes. So 73 million U S adults in 2019 will be part of those age groups, which is mm -hmm. a massive amount of people to think about. And when you factor in the account that like for Facebook, I think 25% of all online spending, uh, spending comes from Facebook. Like how are you advising clients? Like what channels should they be on? And, and how do you go about creating a strategy that works for them? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and I think also kind of speaks to the need for a team like the sort of team that I'm trying to build and, and, and grow. So speaking of buzzwords, we, we talk a lot at Edelman about this idea of being audience centric. So thinking about your end target user and, and behaviors you want to kind of elicit from them um, and then building your social strategy back from that. I think all too often, you know, people get on social for social sake and just to say I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm on TikTok, whatever. And it's just to say that you're doing it and there's no real thought and strategy to it. I think one of the biggest nuances when it comes to the financial sector is that they're rarely selling things in the traditional sense of the word. 
the, the call to action is rarely buy this or invest this. In fact, there's a lot of rules and regulations with, with certain companies like, you know, hedge funds and asset managers that like you can't actually market your fund or your products um, without certain sort of disclaimers. And so traditionally in the financial sector, a lot of what we're doing is more like B2B or recruitment marketing in some cases. So, you know, instead of saying, hey, we want to sell shoes and we want to reach this millennial or Gen Z audience member and let's sell them, you know, send them a really cool piece of creative. It's more like, okay, what are the business goals you're trying to drive? And sometimes it's helping, you know, build their brand. Sometimes it's trying to help them, you know, change their perception. Um, and I think starting with, who you're trying to reach at the, end, and at the end goal is is what we try to push ourselves to do. So, for example, one of our one of the clients we work with, um, their biggest problem in in life is not having enough smart talent coming in the door. And so, we've helped them over the years develop a, a really targeted recruitment strategy to help their recruiters and HR team have better conversations with candidates and sort of help massage and 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 build a narrative around what, why you would want to work at a firm like that. And so, you know, you kind of start with this end goal in mind of, okay, you have a, a group of people that you want to recruit who are financial minded. These are people who go to, the, you know, this set of schools, they study these kind of majors, they're in these kind of clubs. Um, you know, you do some persona research on them, you, you do some in-depth interviews, you talk to some actual humans, and you come up with this understanding of, okay, this type of person spends their time on these kinds of channels, they hear about these firms at this point in their life when they're sophomores or juniors, and so now we know it's really important that we reach this audience target on these three channels at this point in their life so that we can start to have a conversation with them early on in their recruiting process so that by the time they're a junior or senior and they, they already know about the firm, they know about why they would want to work there and it makes the, the conversation and recruiting a lot easier. And so, you know, that's sort of how we go about thinking about channels. It's, I think it's really important to understand the channels, understand the demographics and understand where things are trending because then you can advise clients and, and people that you shouldn't be on this platform if, you're, if your audience isn't spending time there. Um, and so I think, you know, Gen Z is certainly like the next wave of talent. And I think it's an area that, you know, we're starting to look at a little bit more. Um, but I think the, the, the kind of expectation for anyone while they're doing their due diligence from the research we've done is that they're going to check out your social channels before they interview with you. They're going to read about you. They're going to want to learn more about your, your history and your founder and your leadership structure. And that's on your own social channels. We're also thinking a lot about, I'm going to go to Glassdoor, I'm going to go to Reddit, and I'm going to search your, your company name and see what it's like to work there because I'm going to get more of an authentic perspective on Reddit than I would from your recruiting ads. And so, you know, gone are the days where you create a recruiting brochure and bring it to campus and have a booth and that's it. That's certainly part of it. But then there's the whole, you know, you're on campus, we make you aware of who we are, but we better make sure that our digital platforms, our search results, our, you know, our online conversation is being properly managed because that's where a lot of people are getting their information from. Yeah, for sure. I think that that's such a good, you know, looking at it from an HR standpoint and hiring standpoint is something that I probably wouldn't have thought of when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today. Um, but it's super important because even for us, like that's something that I use our Instagram for. It's mm -hmm. more so about 
sharing a story of who we are, telling that narrative. It's not, try- we're not trying to sell them anything on that, really. There's no hard pushes. Uh, all of our organic content's more focused on our community. And we've gotten a few, I've gotten personally a few messages on Slack being like, hey, I just started, but I wanted to let you know that the Instagram was like a huge deciding factor in my yeah. decision. And I was like, what? That's amazing. And that should go right into your performance review because of that's course. a business goal. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious. I mean, particularly when you think about you know, working for uh, an asset manager, a hedge fund, for example, a really strong hire who makes really good decisions in, in their portfolio can lead to a lot of money being made for the firm. Um, same would go across any kind of company. And so if you think about talent as important as a lot of these firms do, um, it becomes very quickly like a very clear ROI. And the other nice thing about when you're working with that kind of goal is you, know, you can set up these measurement frameworks where you're tracking basically from a tweet impression all the way down the funnel to a resume submission. And so if you set up Google Analytics and your pixels properly, you know, the next thing you know, you come visit this website and I'm going to follow you. When you go to Instagram, you're going to see an ad from us. When you go to Facebook, you're going to see it. And you know, obviously you don't want to you know, freak people out, but there is a lot that you can learn from these leading consumer segments like how can we recruit talent like Under Armour sells shoes is, is a thought that I have quite often. And, and we try to learn from that to, to apply it there. Um, and then instead of just saying fluffy things like we, we had this many impressions and the brand is liked more, we can actually say we helped hire X number of people and we can measure a marketing funnel, which uh, when it comes to, you know, the financial sector is, is pretty advanced stuff. It's not really for the consumer world, but it's pretty advanced for where the financial world is. Yeah. So what, what kind of things do you guys, when you're pitching a new client or a new clients coming to you, what are the KPIs that you're setting up with them? Like, what are they looking to track? Sure. So I think, uh, again, it kind of goes back to the business goals. I think sometimes, um, you know, we'll get a client who's, who says, Hey, we're a smaller firm. Um, we're trying to get our name out there and we want to reach this certain section of the community. Um, we want them to know about us. We want them to know about our people. Um, and a lot of the KPIs we kind of focus on in that case would be awareness-based stuff. So we're not actually, we're not as concerned about whether you've clicked through to the website or that you've read or downloaded our ebook. Certainly that's on, on the kind of the, the plan, but it's really important to recognize like, where are you as a company and, and what are your, what are you trying to accomplish here? I think a lot of times if you don't clearly define that, from the outset, you get in a lot of trouble because you're not managing expectations and, you know, you get hired by a company who wants, you know, in their mind, they want, you know, deals to come in. They want new investors. They want new, you know, potential clients. And what they told you is we want to build our brand and we want people to know who we are. Well, we're going to build a, a whole process and, and plan around helping build awareness and, and generate, you know, impressions and that kind of thing versus maybe a more targeted thing where we say, Hey, let's focus on LinkedIn and in an email as a channel. And let's say, forget Facebook, let's forget Twitter because your audience that you care about is this small world and we can reach them on LinkedIn because they have identified with this kind of title, this kind of company. Um, and let's use that as a channel instead and be more surgical. And I think it all just kind of goes back to, you know, what's the business goal to start with. Yeah, I think that keeping expectations is so vital when you're starting a new relationship with a client, having 
also having agency experience, I know that I wish that we had been a little bit more strict about that because mm-hmm. we ended up on places that we didn't really need to be for some clients and that weren't just weren't working. And then we had to put more effort into putting, keeping the lights on, on those accounts, on those channels than if we had just been more upfront in the beginning. But like once, like you said, like if you don't lay the groundwork, work, I'm sorry, if you don't lay the groundwork uh, really well in the beginning, it's pretty hard to go back and, and kind of backtrack on that. And so if we, those are all really excellent things to keep in mind when looking at from a B2B standpoint. Mm-hmm. But if we switch to B2C, uh, what kind of things are you guys doing to capture that audience? Because I know that since we already talked about, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, since we already talked about them, Gen Z, like they want to feel seen and they're yeah. probably like the most fruitful, but also dangerous uh, demographic for people and businesses, especially in the financial sector. Like there's, they want what they want when they want it and they want to feel like everything is personalized to them, uh, that they're the only thing in the world, but they also hold brands and companies to such a high standard. And so obviously when you look back into the news, like there's the financial industry hasn't always had such a glowing, uh, you know, persona about them. So kind of how are you guys changing that mind point, like encouraging younger, younger people to, invest or, or put money away? Cause I know a lot of people have no savings and that's sure. not good at all. Yeah. So I think, you know, oftentimes um, when we're working for some of these bigger institutions, they have, you know, financial literacy is a really important pillar to either different executives with the firm or, or the brand overall. And again, I think it's really thinking about, you know, where are these people that we want to reach spending their time and having a good understanding of that. And I think the reality is unfortunately, we're still very much in my view uh, in many cases still like stuck in the big four, right? Facebook, mm-hmm. Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And I'd say Instagram is like only a recently new kind of entrant into this world. Um, I think there's a balance, right? Like I'm sure you saw a few weeks ago or at this point, maybe months ago, the tweet that went kind of viral from um, one of the big banks where they were in my view, again, not having worked with them or, or knowing anything about, kind of what went into the strategy appeared to be following kind of like the Wendy's playbook of how do we be cool? How do we look young and how do we look hip? And, you know, it was co-opted by, you know, a presidential candidate who had a particular agenda and, and used it effectively to make a point for herself. And I have to imagine that it took, knowing what I know about a lot of our clients, it took years and years to build trust and to explain and to socialize how important digital and social is for the organization. And I have to imagine that that set them back so much because now that can't happen again. And so I think there's a balance between trying to court Gen Z and millennials while also staying true to who you are and what your brand is and stands for. Um, and always like putting a little bit of like your crisis hat on, particularly when you're working in an industry that may be not as beloved as, you know, makeup or shoes or, you know, consumer packaged goods. Um, so I, I think, you know, I don't advise a lot of B2C financial companies. A lot of my expertise kind of is in the B2B area. But what I would say is I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. So long as you are understanding the tendencies and like the personality traits and the consumption behaviors of the people you're trying to reach um, and that you're using the platforms where they are. And so, you know, I would love to see 
a financial client really leaning in and trying to think of a smart Reddit strategy that works for them, is true to their brand, and you know achieves some kind of goal. And, and I think there's a huge opportunity because not a lot of people really engage with Reddit when it comes to branding because it's such a dangerous place and there's so many war stories of things being done not the right way. But I think for the right company and the right strategy behind it, you know, a community management, community engagement kind of based approach where you sort of become a, an ambassador of a brand or trying to figure out areas where you could just add value or help. You know, there's so many communities on Reddit, for example, that are all about personal finance or all about questions that are being answered by strangers. And that's great. And that's fine. And, and, that could be helpful in many cases, but like, wouldn't it be nice if in a non salesy and non cheesy way, a person associated with a financial brand that cared about financial literacy showed up all of a sudden introduced themselves and started just being a member of the community and, and providing advice or providing access to experts. And before you know it, they host an AMA on one of the, like there's a lot that can be done. I think if you're thoughtful about it, um, from a B2C standpoint. And, you know, I think there's also a lot of like first mover advantage when it comes to these new platforms. I think one of the challenges with the financial industry is that they're just getting on Twitter and just getting on the LinkedIn in many cases. And, and by now, like it's so tried and true that you're trying to cut through all this noise. I think in some cases, a lot of the winners are people who are able to spot the next opportunity to be a first mover and, and, skirt the bureaucracy enough to actually activate on it in a timely matter. Yeah. And if you were that person in those shoes, what channel right now would you say is going to be the next up and comer that they should probably get on? Oh gosh. Uh, well, I mean, I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but I mean, TikTok is Vine 2.0 and it is, you know, the, the center of culture. I think you look at, you know, look at old town road, for example, as a case study of, you know, what was a background song for a lot of TikTokers then became, you know, it, it, you literally could watch it. If you're an avid TikToker, you, you heard that song, you saw the trend, and then it kind of faded away. And the next thing you know, you start seeing it on Instagram and on Twitter and on YouTube, and it's a funny thing. And then before you know it, it's like, oh, people actually listen to this song now, and now it's on the top Billboard hits. Now Billy Ray Cyrus is remixing it. And you're seeing this over and over again with these different songs, these different trends. And in that sense, it has so much of Vine built into it. Now, that's like, you can make that statement of how important the platform is. And I would say this is probably true for Twitter as well. It is an incredibly important platform. It's not going anywhere anytime soon because of the critical mass of, of people who are on it, whether it's celebrities, politicians, athletes. It's the platform to be for live events. There's certainly like a lot of downsides to it and challenges from how do you drive a business? Because, um, you know, as we talked about, the goal shouldn't just be likes and retweets. There should be a, 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 you know, a strategy behind it. And likes and retweets should be metrics that you measure that help you understand whether you're achieving a certain goal or not. But it shouldn't be the end game. Like your end game should not be to have a viral tweet. Um, it should be, you know, a part of a strategy and, and you're measuring KPIs and, and metrics like that. So, when I think of TikTok, I think huge opportunity. It's where the attention is, it's where the eyeballs are, no doubt. But how do you actually advertise and how do you capitalize on that sort of thing? You know, as a user myself, I can't tell you the last ad that I actually watched. 
Um, certainly there are a couple that I'm seeing pretty frequently and now you could argue I'm more aware of their brand and that's great. I think you need to be very clear about what, just because it's the new and hot platform, you need to understand like what is the actual value from a business standpoint um, outside of just awareness building. I think it's interesting to break through, but I'm not sure people are sitting there for seven or eight seconds and watching you know, an ad about X, Y, or Z, especially when you consider the demographics. So if you're selling something and the, the majority of TikTok skews 18 and under, these are people who will someday have a lot of purchasing power when they've graduated from school or they've you know gone on and gotten a job. But I mean, I, when I was 18, I didn't have disposable income to throw around at, you know, bomber jackets and, and toothbrushes. So, you know, I think it really, you need to be thoughtful about it. And so I think what you'll probably see on TikTok is the same evolution we saw on all these other platforms, which is consumer brands sprint there. Um, entertainment brands sprint there. They're going to want to advertise a video game or a television show or a concert. And then over time, the ad units will get more mature and it'll, it'll be more self-serve. It'll be less, hey, emailing a person at TikTok and saying, I want to advertise for you. How much will it cost? Once, once the self-serve advertising comes along and there's like some kind of targeting mechanisms besides just right now, which is I think age and, and maybe a little bit less like their ad units aren't super mature at this point. And so I think um, as the ad units and ad business kind of grows there, I think it's a really interesting opportunity because there's no doubt that it's where people are spending their time and thinking about it. But um, I'll be really curious to see once you get down out of like the consumer brand area, like how are, if ever health companies doing it, how are, financial companies doing it. I'm, I'm not sure I see the value quite yet, but certainly, you know, it would be silly not to be watching that space. Yeah. In my opinion, I think those channels, cause you, you already touched on it. They're going to follow that traditional curve of, uh, you know, age over yep. time. Uh, and as you see, like the, as time goes on, the age of the average user tends to rise just a little yep. bit as like parents go on and then kids are like, ah, no, I'm out of here. Yep. So I think that's really kind of and where as the kids get old themselves. I mean, yeah. I was, I was 15, 16 when I got on Facebook. So like, you know, some people grow with the platforms too. And that's, that's a, certainly a valid, I mean, good Lord, I've spent way too many dollars on Instagram things that like Instagram ads are really good. Yeah. Like, good. Like I buy stuff from Instagram. I'm like, I will look cool in that jacket. And then I buy it and I'm like, I don't look cool in that jacket. <laughs> But they can't return so it. Good. And then they know now that they'll get me with that. And so now I get nothing but jackets. And so like that is, in my opinion, like where they get to a point where your ad product is so good that people aren't annoyed by the ads. Um, yeah. Providing a service. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm like, oh, thank you for sending this to me. I needed this. Yep. Like, I, do I need another uh, pair of shoes? No, I don't. But Instagram says I do. And so yep. therefore I guess I do. And yeah. I'm like, they're so cute. I just, I literally, they got me. And it's, it's very interesting. Like how much money they're able to convert on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Cause traditionally, you know, you're looking at Instagram is pretty much owned by the beauty and like fashion brands for the most part. That's kind of where you're seeing a lot of the ads and the e-commerce, like with Shopify sites mm -hmm. are, are really excelling. And so, um, you know, looking at, outside of that like what is the maximum amount of money that i would spend on that channel and so like we our, our programs are pretty expensive they're on mm -hmm. they're a few thousand dollars um so it's kind of hard to get people to convert directly on there but for me personally the largest i think i spent over 300 dollars on a facebook ad 
like yeah. purchase something that was over yeah. $300. And that to me is impressive. It's showing yeah. such a big change in our buying behaviors because I have enough trust in this site that I'm like, oh, they're serving me this ad. Like it's something that I want. And then I can go and look at the, you know, better bureau rating for the, for the company. And there's just like all these different things that are working together outside of Facebook slash Instagram to ensure that people are going to start funneling their money through these platforms. And like Facebook just launched Libra, which is their own Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency. And if that's not a sign that Mark Zuckerberg's planning to take over the world, I don't know what is. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, In my view, like there is nothing new in this world. It's all just like repeating itself and, and patterns. I think there's a phrase that's like history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, Instagram ads are basically QVC like that 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 industry is dying and they've ported it to my mobile phone and there has always been a subsection of people who are bored want interesting and weird and and bizarre things and before you had to stay up until two in the morning and turn on a channel to do it now I can be looking through my friends vacation photos and a wedding you know album on on stories and then I get hit with an advertising for freshly to go you know, buy a meal prep kit. And I've been thinking to myself, Hey, you know, I should start cooking more. And next thing you know, I'm subscribed to a meal prep. You know what I mean? So like they've really just, it's, it's because, you know, but to the credit, Instagram ads weren't that way for a long time, but that's where the attention was. And so I think that's where, you know, if, if TikTok is going to make it as a business, which I, you know, pretty, pretty believe they will, um, it's going to come down to, you know, finding somebody like Sheryl Sandberg to come in and help like mature their ad units like she did at Google and at Facebook and obviously Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I think that another way that people could go about for, I just thought about this, for advertising currently on TikTok, if you wanted to reach that audience, like right now, you have to do it in an authentic way. Because like, as you said, people, you're not really watching the ads, and which is common for a lot of platforms with younger viewers they know that they're getting served ads they'll they'll skip them um but i think that one of the ways that people are really and companies in general are really integrating themselves into these platforms is by creating an experience that's an ad that doesn't feel like one Mm -hmm. so like you know leveraging a the old town road tiktok video style and like having someone in like a shirt from one of your companies like doing that in such small ways where you're not really like they still, I don't know if they have, I have never been on TikTok personally. Mm. <laughs> so I, I don't know if there's like a text box where they would have to disclose that it's an ad, but you know, influencer marketing is, is such a big thing currently. And with all the rules and compliance regulations that surround the financial uh, you know, industry, it's kind of difficult to see how that could work. Have you ever thought about doing anything like that for a client? No. And, and, you know, I think we'll get there maybe someday, but part of what makes my business unique is that I promise my clients, I will never pitch them an ideas like that because they don't want their time to be wasted with something that is like never going to fly and is, is too risky. And so in some ways it's, it's a little bit tricky because as a user and a believer and like a consumer of this ecosystem and this industry, I kind of recognize that I'll probably never get to do that really cool, amazing creative execution for the MBA on whatever. But I'm cool with that because I think it's really interesting and, and for me fulfilling to help companies start navigating and taking their first step into the digital and social world. Um, I think I've seen, you know, there's a couple of ways you can engage on a platform like TikTok. Obviously, there are like the ad units of, you know, you're swiping through the videos and an ad actually shows up that you've made. You can also um, do sponsored trends and hashtags. So one of the things they do, there's a, there's a section within TikTok 
where a lot of these trends start um, of, you know, doing like the cowboy old town road thing. And you can actually sponsor a trend that might make sense for your, your brand. But there's also, that's like the paid side. I also think there's a ton of room for like a smart organic strategy because there aren't a lot of brands who've ruined TikTok yet. <laughs> they will get there. Um, but I, I will say one of my favorite accounts to follow um, that if anyone listening um, is, a, is on TikTok, check out the Washington Post and, and watch their channel. I think they're, they're doing such an interesting job of assimilating and adopting the TikTok culture while also being self-aware enough to recognize that they're a brand and that they're an old brand and that they're old people relative to the 13-year-olds on the platform and then being funny about the fact that they are old and they know that they're old and that they're lame. And so what they do is they use all of these trends and memes that are happening and they acknowledge the fact that they're old, but they're still doing it true to the platform. And I think they're building a lot of fans and people who are younger who maybe never gave a thought to news literacy. I certainly never you know, started reading a, a certain newspaper religiously until I was you know, out of college, truthfully. Um, I kind of just consumed news as it came to me in my social feeds, which I think is probably the majority of people. They don't read a certain publication. They read what's kind of aggregated to them. But I think they're being really smart about being a first mover, getting on the platform. And over the, over time, when that 13-year-old who thought that meme was funny goes to read something, they already have like an affinity towards the Washington Post that is starting to build at a young age. And, you know, who knows, in two or three years, five years, they could become a, a digital subscriber to the to the paper. Yeah. When you think about, you know, the, the funnel basically for marketing, it's so interesting that a lot of brands still aren't thinking about that life, like the lifeline where it's, you know, you're one of my clients had an older demographic. They're like fifties ish mm -hmm. and up dying off, which is unfortunate, but that happens. And they weren't really thinking about how they were going to leverage a younger audience. And they were going to like, you know, moms, like millennial moms. And I was like, you have to go younger than that. Cause eventually mm -hmm. like the new trend with millennial moms is that they're, you know, more healthy and like, they're not going to buy a candy brand for their kid for the most part. Like they are trying to stick more towards, you know, quinoa and stuff mm -hmm. like that and making their own baby food. But Yelchip. if you get there, yeah, if you, <laughs> if you get their 13 year old kid who still has an opp opportunity to one be a you know be a brand advocate for for you while while they grow up that's like a good channel to market to yeah. uh like tracking them from 13 until they're you know 89 years old mm -hmm. um so, you know, like thinking about that is super important when, especially when you're thinking about more B2C, uh, when you think more B2B, it's also super important to think about that lifeline and like life cycle that they're going to go through because people leave brands, like leave companies over time. So, you know, looking at that, how are you guys handling, because I know we touched on the HR part of it, but like, mm -hmm. what do you do when people like leave? <laughs> what do you mean by like, like leave the firm or kind yeah. of like the brand? Yeah, like either or. Like, are you guys are you looking to convert them into brand ambassadors after they leave? Um, it's a good question. I don't see that as much in the B two B space because, like, the reality is it's not sexy, and so I think it's kind of a um, a false goal to have. And sometimes you kind of have to call a spade a spade and recognize that 
here's what we're able to control in this world. I'm never going to get somebody who's going to go out on Twitter and just tweet how much he loves this investment company. Like I, I love my bank that I use. I've used Ally Bank for five, six years. I'm not going to tweet about that. Like I just, it's not something I care about. And, and that's for a, a company that I feel like has done right by me. They have great, whatever. I'm not going to go out and become an ambassador for that. So I think you have to understand kind of where your limitations are within your sector and acknowledge that, you know, what's valuable for us is, you know, word of mouth and, and positive sentiment amongst, you know, talent and recruiting. Um, we care about, you know, the overall brand perception of these firms we work with among, you know, their, the investment community. Um, and, and another area that we work within in our business is helping public companies talk about their financials, right? So on a quarterly basis, if you're a publicly traded company, you have to, you know, communicate about your earnings and disclose that way. And that's an area where we're seeing a lot of companies start to kind of push the envelope a little bit more. And what's traditionally been, you know, an earnings call that you dial into and listen to, you know, the CEO reads a script about the the quarter and they they disclose, you know, forward looking statements. And that was kind of it. Now, a lot of the, the more forward leaning companies like PepsiCo or, you know, PayPal or eBay, these are companies that are taking it a step further and taking what might be considered dense and boring financial information and they're creating a content strategy around earnings so that every quarter while they're giving this presentation and this call live, they're tweeting about it. And that's, you know, if you think about an audience that they care about, they care about financial media, they care about journalists who cover the company and will write about it for the Wall Street Journal. And these are people who spend all of their time on Twitter. And I know they do because I read all their tweets. And so, you know, if you click on a cash tag for a company, people are talking, they're having conversations about buy, sell, you know, here's the report, analysts are saying this. And if you're not having a part of that, conver- if you're not a part of that conversation, you're missing out because they're having it without you. And so why not inject your perspective and your POV and your content into that conversation? And when you do that and you properly manage those channels, you actually see another clear business result of, you know, stock performs well, the price goes up, you know, analysts and investors understand the rationale for why you might have missed a number, why you might have missed um, you know, something you promised in the future. A change in strategy, if well communicated, could lead to growth and, and the stock to go up instead of going down. And so, you know, it's just an evolution of how you think about financial communications um, from a public company standpoint. But another layer of how do you know you think about using digital and social to communicate what might have been more of a traditional press and media and quote unquote boring topic. Yeah, transparency is definitely key moving forward, I think, across all industries on social. People want to know what's going on. They want to be more involved in the process, regardless of whatever industry it is. We're all nosy, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in the the era where everything's at your fingertips and you can find dirt on everyone, uh, it's really important that brands and organizations are kind of owning their presence on social and telling their narrative. Because, you know, as great as Google is, Google shows you what you look for. And so if someone's trying to find negative news on you, they're going to find it, but they can't negative, they can't find negative skewed news on your social media accounts if you're being honest and transparent about everything that's going on. But that also brings into like the, the more negative mindset. Like obviously Twitter is great because people, there's a lot of news. If you're, if you're a news or outlet or, you know, one of the big funny brands, you're doing really well on Twitter. 
And if you're mm-hmm. not, I think a lot of the people use Twitter more so as a, uh, you know, consumer relations portal mm-hmm. where people go for help or if they have a problem. So do you have any like fun stories to share about how to manage that, especially when negative news comes through on Twitter? Sure. So, um, one of my jobs that I had at Edelman years ago, I sat on our, what we called the digital crisis team. So we were kind of like a center of excellence team within the firm. And our job was to be, again, digital experts, people who understood, um, you know, these platforms as well as the next person, but also sat within our crisis management practice that, you know, taught us how to be crisis management practitioners and crisis counselors. And so we were being brought in quite frequently on situations when clients call Edelman and say, hey, this is happening. We need your help. And, you know, in the financial industry, you're always going to get negative feedback. You're always going to get negative commentary that's maybe not necessarily even based in fact. I think a lot of times the financial industry, right or wrong, is used as kind of a punching bag because, you know, people who run these companies are, are wealthy and, you know, it's easy to kind of just throw those people under the bus. And so I think I'll get to a, a story in a second. I think one of the things that I learned uh, a long time ago is just learning how to properly frame and contextualize social um, when you're dealing with a client, particularly even, you know, think about the client might know what's going on, the people around your client, their bosses, their head of finance, their CEO, their CFO, they don't know anything about this industry. And you really have to think about how you arm them with data to help them contextualize what's going on. Because what, what we always used to say is that we're getting calls from clients on, the, on their worst day of their job in the last month, year, career. And they feel like the sky is falling. They feel like everything is terrible and their life is over. They might lose their job. And our job is to come in and as professionals, assure them and give them, you know, the truth about, hey, this is where we assess the situation to be. Here's what we think you should do and how to fix it. But also give them contact and say, this is not as bad as you think it is. And here's a couple of examples of reasons why you should think that. And you should send this to your CEO or you should send this to your CFO and help them understand that like, yes, this feels like it's a lot. But actually, when we pull the data, (laughs) these 19 tweets that you're freaking out about collectively have only reached 100,000 people. That's nothing. And so if you come back and and come out swinging and say, I'm going to respond to this person, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight them on Twitter the odds of you winning are so small because you're a company and you're required to follow a number of rules. Why would you ever want to engage with a troll that has no you know, reason to follow any other rules? So um, that I think is, is really important. The, the fun, funny story that I had to deal with once uh, on that team is we got a call from a client who was about to be the subject of an episode of John Oliver's last week tonight. Um, and so that was a really interesting challenge because, you know, they, and I give that, that show and that team a lot of credit. They reached out, you know, a couple weeks in advance, they shared all of the questions they wanted answers to. They, you know, after we answered those questions and helped the clients with them, um, they wrote back and said, here are all some of the claims we're going to make and would love you to help us fact check. And so, you know, I, as a fan of the show, it was nice to see, in the background that they aren't like a a gotcha journalism kind of organization. They're really a company, you know, a group of people who are just trying to get the story right. Um, And so what we had to do is, is 
help this company understand what was about to happen to them. And there's a, um, I guess it's like a phenomenon that that we talk about a lot in, in the crisis management world called the Streisand effect. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but for those of you who aren't listening, maybe have never heard of this. Um, years ago, Barbara Streisand um, had a, a, a house and was complaining that people were trying to take pictures of it. And she made it into such a big deal that she wanted people to stop taking photos of her house and get it off the internet that it ended up becoming a huge deal in and of itself. And this plays out over and over again where the desire to minimize something or to hide something more often than not causes it to become a bigger issue. Um, you see that with people trying to get photos removed. You see that with people you know, trying to hide information. It, it ends up being a bigger deal than if you just ignored it in the first place. And so with this client, we had to really help set the stage that we went through, you know, at this time, I think it was, it was season two, we went through all of season one and kind of helped track and measure, this is what an average episode gets in terms of viewership. These are the average amount of tweets and comments that are going to come out. And so if we find ourselves and we help them prepare like this risk matrix, if we find ourselves in the bottom quartile of this many tweets this many video views we should consider that kind of a win because that means this really hasn't taken off in the way that others have here's the the yellow light and here's the red light where we should take these kind of actions and so i think if we hadn't done that the client would have seen a youtube video with you know six million views and said we have to respond what we were able to show them was his most successful episodes get 30 million views his least one his mint but like no matter what you'll get 5 million views on this. And so when we were able to say after one day, hey, this only got 6 million views, let's stay the course and not say anything, it ended up being like a one-day story. And it wasn't great for them, but it was certainly our job was to help it not become worse. Because, you know, I think you saw the WWE kind of punch back at them at a recent episode, um, which made it a two-day story, a three-day story. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the world of community management, the world of brand management on social is... Um, it's a thankless task and it's really important. Um, and, uh, sometimes I think it's mostly just about like setting expectations and, and, and providing context. Yeah. I mean, as someone that has worked in community management for most of my career, it's, it is definitely a thankless job and it is definitely one of the most interesting places to be because you are on the for like the front lines, basically yep. that is, you're getting the worst of it. The amount of times that I had to watch porn on Twitter because people just tag it and I'm like, why did you do this? This is nothing yep. related to the brand. Uh, you know, it's kind of kind of scarring. But when you think about yeah, there was a, there was a great piece um, in in the Verge recently by a guy named Casey Newton um, where he actually kind of did like a really in depth investigative journalism piece about what it's like being a content moderator at Facebook. Ooh, yeah, They're even worse than community management. Like these are people who are tasked with reviewing content that you or I might have flagged on the platform as, you know, violating the terms of, of privacy. So you can imagine all of like the violence and inappropriate topics that they're forced to scroll through and make a judgment call on. And it was a really interesting piece. And, and it's something that I was like, aware of as a, as a person who works in social, but hadn't really thought through like the true impact of that. And um, yeah, he's, he's a terrific writer and I would definitely recommend reading that. It was, it was pretty sad and, and horrible to read. Yeah, I, I I think I glanced through it, either yeah. that or a different one that kind of dealt into the topic of, you know, content moderation, mm -hmm. because those people are paid not much, and yep. they see the worst of the worst. It's kind of like, um, like, I mean, the FBI also has their own 
branch that does that kind of stuff and so knowing like the turnover time is like super short for that role because it's it's one of the hardest things that you have to sit through and watch and a lot of people when you think about social they're not thinking about the you know impact of what you see every single day but for us like luckily I don't have to deal with that every day but I don't know how I would handle it if that was my job I don't think I could last longer than a few years at the most before I went crazy and lost faith in humanity um (laughs) But yeah, like I think that going back to the crisis management stuff, because that's also super important, especially for B2B, um, crisis happens all the time. Yeah. It's not a reflection of people's brands. I mean, it is a little bit, but like everyone has their day, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just whether or not you're unlucky enough to get your ticket pulled. Um, yeah. If you fail to plan, you should plan to fail. And that's kind of like the ethos we live by. And so crisis work is not just response. I, I would say half of our business was helping companies prepare. And I, I think... Um, thankfully, you know, it's tricky if you prepare a company and nothing happens or something does happen and you're able to mitigate it, it's really hard to point to crisis training as the reason why something didn't happen. So it's hard to be like, oh, this is such a valuable investment, but I guarantee you every single client who call us on the responsive side wishes that they had done more work or believed that having a crisis playbook for these six different issues that we think are likely to happen in our industry um, I'm sure they were wishing they had that because the the brand damage value of a lot of these f- companies who've had issues in the last couple of years is it's it's tough. It's really yeah. tough. It's very high. Yeah, I think it doesn't help that we're living currently in a a culture of you know cancel culture mm-hmm. where you fuck up one time and you're done. Yeah, people people will destroy you. Yep. <laughs> So, you know, it's it's just something to keep in mind. And every I urge every company always, anyone that I worked with from, you know, bigger organizations within my agency or current role or past clients that I had on, on the freelance side, crisis is important. Yep. Even if you never have a crisis, always have a plan. And, yep. and, you know, that's just industry standard. It's the first thing I learned in my PR classes was always plan for the worst because then, you know, you're going to be prepared for anything. Yeah. Um, So with that, we're actually coming to the end of our episode. So I always love to ask people any closing thoughts that they want to share, any departing words of wisdom. Um, If you don't have any, what would your ideal social media network look like? Uh, You know, I just, I can't stop talking about Reddit and TikTok. Those are two of my favorite places as a consumer to spend my time. And I'm just really excited for those to start becoming more mainstream destinations for companies. Um, I think particularly with Reddit, they've introduced some different ad units that have turned comments off. And to me, I think that was always the biggest concern is I'm never going to advertise on Reddit because I'm just going to get shredded in the comments and they're going to, no matter how good the ad, no matter how relevant it is, you, that, that culture on that platform is so, um, we, we say a lot, they have like the highest bullshit detectors in all of the internet. Um, turning off that creates such a cool opportunity to like get a message in front of people, drive them to a landing page and not have to worry about that backlash. So I think, I think Reddit such an interesting area. And as somebody who's been using it since I was, you know, also around 15 years old, um, it's just such a cool, a cool platform. And I'm excited to see more and more brands think about how they can use it both on an ad side, but also I think community management is a huge opportunity for them. Um, and then I'm just going to continue TikTok and on and hope that you get on it too. 
Um, I've got my girlfriend on it. I've got like friends on it. And they all kind of like roll their eyes at me. And they're like, isn't this an app for 13 year olds? And I'm like, if you want to be at all plugged into culture and where the world is going, you need to get on this app. Also, if the videos are cringy, there's tons of puppy content on there. <laughs> so that's more or less what my girlfriend listens to and watches. She just has a feed full of corgis. So there's something for everybody. Um, and if I haven't sold you on TikTok yet, then I'm not sure what will. You have. It's it's all good. I'm gonna download it as soon as we get yeah, off. Follow the Washington Post. I think they're doing really cool stuff. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for being on. I really, really appreciated it. Um, I hope that you enjoyed as well. And I hope everyone listening got a lot out of this episode because I know I did. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me and um would love to chat with anybody on Twitter. I'm at Joe underscore Scannell. So give me a follow and say hello. Awesome. We'll link all of your social deets in the episode description. So if you want to learn more about Edelman or Joe himself, feel free to check out the description below. 